This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Trumpcast 2017. It's going to be absolutely tremendous, I have to tell you. Democrats are putting it out because they suffered one of the greatest defeats in the history of politics in this country. What the hell is that dude talking about? I don't understand this. His boss has come out and already drawn conclusions and said, I don't believe them. If he's going to have any credibility as president, he needs to stop talking this way. He needs to stop denigrating the intelligence community. Get the facts. The facts are there about Russian behavior. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I'm introducing a breakthrough idea long suppressed under the evil Obama administration. I'm saying Joya December 28th. Finally, we can say it. Joya December 28th. Doesn't that feel good? Liberation at last. I'm sure you didn't touch Twitter over the break, so I hope you're detoxed and refreshed and ready to dive back in. And let me just say that while you were out, nothing got better. But when we were off scarfing figgy pudding and playing with Hatchimals, reporters did keep their heads down, and we got a flood of reports and editorials, in particular about how cracked and undermined American information space is. We now know from the Wall Street Journal that Robert Mueller has requested information from Cambridge Analytica. I love when Mueller requests things, requests. And Cambridge Analytica is, of course, the data firm that the Trump campaign used during the 2016 presidential race. The Washington Post published an editorial by Paul Waldman called Russia is going to attack our next election and the Trump administration may not even try to stop it. And The Washington Post also published an op-ed by former CIA director Michael Morell and former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Representative Mike Rogers. He's a Republican. So remember, not exactly real hysterics, these guys, not exactly doing the bidding of Democrats trying to undermine Trump's great victory. These are cyber and information hawks. And they argue in their amazing op-ed that Russia has continued its cyber attacks against the United States. They also serve on the Advisory Council for the Alliance for Securing Democracy. I mention this thing all the time on Trumpcast because it has an extraordinary feature called the Hamilton 68 dashboard that really tracks how bots are used to disseminate propaganda that's designed to weaken the country and its democracy. What these guys say, that's Morell and Rogers, say that there's a perception among the media and general public that Russia ended its social media operations following last year's election, but that's wrong. Russia information ops in the United States continued after the election and to this day. The New York Times had an op-ed by Yair Rosenberg of Tablet Magazine about his efforts 
one man's efforts to counter anti-Semitic attacks on Twitter using a bot designed to spot imposter trolls and Twitter's ultimate censoring of his bot in favor of the neo-Nazis, who once again rampage through the sites. But at the heart of all this is a blockbuster piece in the Washington Post from December 25th called Kremlin Trolls Burned Across the Internet as Washington Debated Options by Adam Entus, Ellen Nakashima, and Greg Jaffe. So I love this headline, Kremlin Trolls Burned Across the Internet as Washington Debated Options, because what you find out when you get into the piece is that Washington really dithered and equivocated about how exactly to handle Kremlin trolls, which they knew existed and, you know, came or set about influencing the election. The headline brings to mind narrow, fiddled while Rome burned. Um, And, you know, that expression really does suggest the extent of the damage that was done by these operations. My guest today to talk about this piece is one of its authors, Ellen Nakashima, who covers national security for The Washington Post. She'll be with me in a minute. Joining me on the line is Ellen Nakashima, who covers national security for The Washington Post, to talk about her piece about Kremlin trolls and the effort to counter them. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. Great to be with you. So sometimes it seems like what we've been doing on Trumpcast since the election is telling a detective story. We started with a dead body in uh, November 2016. Let's call that the United States of America. And now we are trying to figure out who did it, who put Trump in power. And there are many, many suspects, but among them are the Russians and in particular Russian information warfare. So you at the Washington Post with your colleagues, um, Greg Jaffe and Adam Entus, um, have written this extraordinary piece about Kremlin trolls and the efforts in Washington to stem the tide of them Mm. that ultimately didn't work or didn't implement. Walk me through this piece a little bit. We started out with the goal of trying to understand what the United States government had done in the area of information operations, especially vis-a-vis the Russians, and how the government came to sort of cede the the battlefield to the Russians. Um, And we we did a lot of reporting, much of which actually didn't make it into the finished piece, uh, just for lack lack of space. Yeah, some of which you know went back to the Cold War, and and then obviously we knew what happened was we found that with the end of the Cold War and the peace dividend, uh, there was a sense that this the propaganda war was over, the battle had been won by the United States. We didn't need to do information warfare or information operations against the Soviets or the Russians. Uh, The the covert finding that had existed during the Cold War that enabled such operations was lifted and it was no longer. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, the U.S. Information Agency, the USIA, the Mm -hmm. big uh, uh, information propaganda agency run by the U.S. government was disbanded at the end of the Cold War. And nothing really took its place. In the sort of ensuing years, there were sporadic efforts, largely by the U.S. Army, to 
kind of flex its muscles in information operations in in the Balkans in North Africa. Um, but those efforts really never gained traction for a variety of reasons. And then, of course, after 9-11, the big focus was on counterterrorism. Tell me about, say, what some of those operations in the Balkans, what is it in the 90s? were or beginning, say, in the 90s or in Africa. Yeah, yeah. What, you know, just just by showing us what information warfare or, or counter information warfare looks like. So th- there was an uh, information operations officer named Austin Branch who started mm-hmm. experimenting with things like uh, creating websites, names like uh, the Balkan Times, for instance, that was set up to do counter-propaganda against uh, Slobodan Milosevic. Now, uh, and, and it would have be a site that would mix, um, you know, information and news with sports and sort of entertainment to try to draw in a broader audience. And all of this was supposedly, you know, it was supposed to be fact-based information. It wasn't fake news or deception or created news or propaganda, but it was it was information that was being put out to uh, promote sort of the Western ideals and counter um, uh, Milosevic's propaganda. Uh, and then later he branched into sort of some websites that were aimed at Northern African audiences. And what he ran into was some skepticism, especially on the Hill from Congress, from aides who were saying like, well, just prove, how do you prove what you're doing is having any impact, is having any effect? And it was just very hard to gauge how you were, whether and how you were changing minds or opinions. And that's always been Mm. the challenge Mm. in influence operations to this day. Right. And there had been, during the Cold War, there had been so many, in some cases, operations that seemed silly or wasteful or just kind of cloak and dagger spy games um, in retrospect that I can imagine Congress saying we need to shrink this budget. It needs to be results oriented. um, Exactly. Gauging the changes to hearts and minds. I remember in particular a a friend of mine's grandfather um, was involved with the CIA during the Bay of Pigs. And he said one of the things they had done in Cuba was (laughs) drop big Condoms for this for the uh, American soldiers to indicate to Cu- to Cubans <laughs> that uh, that you know these guys were like super powerful and well endowed and so on. But I mean, those were the kind of things that these like CIA elite right. CIA people did toward changing hearts and minds and making the uh, making Americans seem fearsome. And when you looked back on that after the Cold War, it just seemed like America had kind of won on its merits, and we didn't need to do this like you know expensive, profligate kind of self-advertising anymore. But maybe we did because the Kremlin made no such decision about the about the uh, impotence of information warfare. That's right. And, and then also keep in mind that there's been a law on the books for a while that also bans any propaganda or, or influence-type operations that might have an effect on American audiences that could blow back and, and affect 
Americans' attitudes or opinions. You mean Americans living abroad or... or no, in, in Americans in the U.S. in particular. I yeah, see. So American if they audiences. saw like very jingoistic clash of civilizations propaganda there, they might think of that as what, imperialistic or or, do you, or something else, something more subtle than that? I mean, it could have been something more subtle. The, the, the government didn't want to be... Uh, affecting U.S. population, you know, the, the American society's uh, um, opinions or, or, or views based on propaganda that was aimed at influencing audiences abroad. So Got there it. was that, that ban that they were working with. Um, and then another, another factor was during the 90s into the 2000s, um, and some, in some quarters, for instance, I remember we were talk. We interviewed uh, Mike Hayden, who was in the ni- mid '90s, the head of Air Force Intelligence, and he said we had a big internal debate in the mid '90s over whether to go with information dominance or cyber dominance, and and cyber would be a subset of information dominance. But he says, for, a, for you know, a variety of reasons, some of them good, we we ended up going with cyber dominance and and casting aside the, you know, not taking the path of information dominance, which includes psychological operations, um, deception, influence operations, as well as cyber. I remember thinking, I remember um, as recently as a year ago, thinking that, um, that the Kremlin can't have had in mind simply you know, some kind of dominance of information space or infect, infection or infestation of inf- information space, they must be moving toward knocking out the power grids or bringing down the American internet or some other more cyber-looking, or, you know, or mm-hmm. even drones. Mm-hmm. Um, it, because I just, you know, like the U.S. government, did not think that influence operations and information warfare um, could be so effective. Right. And uh, so 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 tell me about, you know, h- how we missed it or at least how what you say is this counterintelligence operation called mm-hmm. Northern Night um, ended up not going anywhere, not going far enough. Well, Northern Night was the name of, a, of an FBI counterintelligence investigation that was tracking Russian sock, sock puppets or fake personas on social media dating back to at least uh, the fall of 2015. And they, they, they were uh, identifying personas such as the one we wrote about, Alice Donovan, uh, who as a you know, creation of a Russian military psychological operations officer was writing articles or plagiarizing articles in some cases and getting them placed in um, U.S. and Canadian outlets initially to, you know, to just to build up her bona fides, and then increasingly during the campaign to do to amplify um, a message that was to undermine Hillary Clinton and and promote Donald Trump, which was just clearly in line with with the Kremlin's goals. Their their overall their overall mission or goal was to just really stoke divisions in the United States, just as they had been doing in Western Europe, to undermine the notion of Western liberal democracy and, by comparison, make their form of, of government society look better or at least not as bad. Uh, and, and if that meant helping Trump win, so be it. it, it you know, this was all part of a bigger, broader um, game to try to 
undermine the concepts of, of democracy and, and so, as you've heard, discord in the, in the U.S. populace. Um, so let's look at Alice Donovan's CV. I mean, you you call her a sock puppet, and I do think this year has introduced um, you know people who don't live on social media to some of the phantoms that have haunted it since the beginning. Um, sock puppets are, of course. I mean, I remember sock puppet scandals from you know the early part of this century as more like someone posing, giving his own books a good review, you know, um, posing as someone else. Um, right. So it all seemed fairly. I mean, that's the reason I bring up the you know the condom story in Cuba is some of the stuff seems so silly, and yet it can be so effective. Yeah. So you all note that the that the note the email comes at. Uh, 3.26 a.m., one of the one of the sort of fingerprints that uh, Muscovites and Kremlin agents somehow decided to leave <laughs> is that they often, the bots often appear in the morning, the middle of the day in Moscow, but the morning U.S. time, right. <laughs> the emails come at that time, too. You'd think that exactly. they would cover their, cover their tracks more, but, um, but apparently in this mm-hmm. case, they'd leave it. So she writes this note to counter, counter, punch. And then what she like starts pitching stories or she starts just writing stories and uploading stories. And what are the what does the staff at Counterpunch do about the stuff she is uploading? And why don't they recognize it? Yeah. So my colleague, Anna Mintis, interviewed Jeffrey St. Clair, the editor of Counterpunch, who until Adam contacted him in late November, had no idea that Alice was uh, a creation, you know, was, mm. was not fake, was not for who she said she was. And uh, he had, you know, evidently run a number of her articles. And then once he started, once he was informed that the FBI suspected she was a persona, he asked her for some form of identification to at least, you know, show that she was who she said she was, like a beginning freelance journalist. Mm-hmm. And as we say in the article, uh, she said she, for security reasons, no longer wanted to to be in touch and uh, and really just sort of ceased uh, communicating with 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 the editor. So why was she why did she appeal to them to begin with? I mean, there's so many freelancers and also were they paying her? You know, I don't know uh, whether or not she was paid, but uh, I suspect because you know, they're they're not a, a very big organization that they probably, you know, depend on a lot of work from freelancers to to fill their pages. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, this gets back to what we were saying earlier. It's just, it's hard to know or to gauge just what impact any of, of these articles did. But she was one of many um, in, in, a, in a field of, crowded field of, of uh, trolls and, and sock puppets. And she is, according to, a, you know, some researchers, she's linked, her account was linked to other accounts that were known sort of Russian trolls in in uh, on Twitter, for instance, in social media. So part of this is just to also, you know, amplify messages that are already out there and, and articles that are out there and and 
and get them spread within the social media universe. It, it's 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 worth listeners looking at um, the they've deleted the um, the Alice Donovan's uh, corpus from their site um, and put up instead a piece called "Go Ask Alice: The Curious Case of Alice Donovan." Um, she has kind of a porny Twitter profile image and um, otherwise a very dubious, you know, online presence um, and. Um, I mean, as you say, she's just one example, but mm-hmm. it is it is pretty interesting that she, you know, where her first pieces were on Syria and other places, um, uh, they then changed to kind of pro WikiLeaks, you know, a, a amplification of the would be mm-hmm. scandal around around Hillary Clinton. Um, so. Uh, so that's Alice Donovan. We don't know how much influence that has on things, but we do know that you know she was sticking to the uh, to the party line that um, that mm-hmm. you know Hillary was would was was uh, was a disaster and was uh, virtually criminal. Um, you know, and this is Counterpunch comes under you know it's a lefty site. It says it's fearless muckraking since 1993, <laughs> and. Probably someone who has um, seemingly counterintuitive opinions, you know, against the um, pro Assange and um, and against the Democratic Party is going to seem appealing in some ways. Right. She had, you know, one thing that people who say they would never fall for bots or never fall for fake news. Um, one of the reasons I think common wisdom is that. no one can capture a true American idiom. They can't write in a way that sounds, you know, organically uh, American. Um, But, you know, she seems, when I read her prose, it sounds not unlike Fox News, you know. It doesn't sound like, you know, the Washington Post, um, but it sounds... Mm -hmm. um, You know, whatever. The emails have exposed Hillary Clinton in a major way. And almost no one is right. reporting on it. Um, sounds like uh, our president, you know. Well, and then interestingly, after the election, some of her articles took on an anti-Trump uh, administration mm. tone. Some of the articles criticizing the administration's policies in Syria and, you know, accusing the administration of, of being terrorists, uh, you know, for opposing uh, Assad's government. So... That kind of showed, again, that the Kremlin's goal is really not so much just to, to have elected Trump, but to, to you know, stoke sort of divisions in, in this country and, and keep people divided and, and just uh, foment discord. That's the real goal. This that's that seems really important to bring up because whenever the the you know dossier comes up or or Facebook's you know possible complicity, um, so the Trump administration says, well, if there's any time that they had an anti-Trump message or seem to be working for Democrats, then they um, then they're they're simply partisan right. and can't be and can't be taken seriously. I mean that shows. An ignorance of how well it shows a lot of things, but one of them is an ignorance of how information, cyber warfare, information warfare works. Um, and this piece is so extraordinarily well sourced. I mean, there's how many you talk to so many people in intelligence in the Trump administration in a few cases in publishing, 
Um, one of the senior Trump officials um, who's anonymous in the piece says is if the influence operations, if the information attacks um, changed one electoral vote, you know, you tell me. And then right. he and then he um, gets on talking points um, that incidentally left, right and center have used too. the Russians didn't tell Hillary Clinton not to campaign in Wisconsin. Tell me how many votes they changed in mm-hmm. Michigan. Um, and that the Democrats are just using, um, you know, these re- this report in particular to delegitimize the pre- presidency. Um, you know, is there is there possibly any any truth to that? So that's a narrow gauge view. Is yes, I mean, there's no evidence that the Russians actually, um, you know, for instance, they didn't change the votes in the voting machines, and it's really really hard to know whether or not voters in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or Michigan, whether any one of them changed a vote, cast a vote differently because of some ad they saw on Facebook or or some tweet, you know, that a sock puppet put out. Mm-hmm. But the overall goal, I mean, when, when you look at what the Russians did by, um, you know, creating essentially secessionist movements in, in Texas and uh, mm-hmm. California mm-hmm. Or, or creating um, protests in New York and Texas and just sort of doing the sorts of things that uh, really created enmity and and fired up the already fraught uh, tensions and animosities that were that existed within the American society and just enhanced them and turned people against one another even in, in, in starker fashion than they might have otherwise. I think that's what this influence operation aimed to do and succeeded at. What do you think about, um, about I was going to say, well, next year, but, you know, beginning four mm-hmm. days from now, 2018 and, and, and 2020's elections, um, the piece does not paint a rosy picture for defense against these kind of operations in those years. I mean, we have not exactly rallied and learned our lesson yet. No, it's it's a it's a difficult one to to figure out. I mean, I th- I certainly think the first order of business is to raise public awareness um, and to really have the American public people understand what it is Russia was up to, what they were trying to do, and how they were trying to do it. Uh, you know. Having information is is probably the first line of defense, mm-hmm. um, and and then maybe American you know the American public being a little more educated can can look at some of the things they're seeing on um, on Facebook or so on on social media and in, on websites and and try to read and evaluate with a little more of a critical lens mm-hmm. to, to try to understand you know what's going on here. Um, I know that in some countries in Eastern Europe, like Estonia, Estonia, which has long been uh, a target for Russian influence, I mean, it's, it has a large Russian-speaking population there. Uh, one of the reasons they say that their country is a little bit inured, more inured to it mm-hmm. than others, is that uh, the the people there are very well aware now, having you know lived for decades under the uh, in the Soviet uh, sphere of influence, uh, they're aware of what the Russians 
do and how they do it. And and the Russian-speaking population, in fact, is also, um, they're slightly less susceptible because they really don't want to go and, you know, go back and live in Russia. They don't want to be part of Mother mm. Russia. They, mm-hmm. they prefer uh, the the their sort of quality of lifestyle they have in the West and in Estonia. So, you know, our, if our ground is fertile right now, maybe we need to find, find a way to make it less fertile to mm. sort of the Russians' uh, efforts. Um, this is great. Thank you so much. The piece is fantastic. It's called Kremlin Trolls Burned Across the Internet as Washington Debated Options. Ugh, it's just like terrifying, but also illuminating to have such a well-reported piece. Thanks very much for being here. Thank you. My guest has been Ellen Nakashima. She covers national security for The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast Today was produced by the great Verilyn Williams. Jason DeLeon will be back next week. Today is our last show of 2017. Now, before the year is out, I have one assignment for you. Follow us on Twitter at RealTrumpCast. We do the best tweets. They're tremendous. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Have a great new year and see you in 2018.